0: Father God, I pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit uh, into the house now uh, as we enter a time of uh, this receiving uh, from you. I pray that you would build up your children, uh, that you would heal us and encourage us and empower us and guide us. We incline ourselves uh, to you in Jesus' name. Have, have you ever missed a big opportunity in life? Anybody missed a, missed a big opportunity or feel that you have? A few people. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to tell, I think, on a practical level whether you've missed an important opportunity because um, it's the sort of history that, uh, back when I studied social science, uh, we called counterfactual history. It runs counter to the facts, you know? If you don't do something, you don't really know what would have happened if you had chosen to do that thing, right? And so I think mostly the whole missed opportunity thing in life is probably a fool's game. It's not a game that we want to play. We don't want to, we don't want to beat ourselves up over opportunities that we should have taken, but for some reason uh, didn't. Uh, counterfactual history is imaginary. We don't, we don't really know. But here's what I can do. I can look back on my life and say to myself, wow, I wish I had done things differently. Now, does anybody feel that. Uh, I, I, wish, I wish I had turned right instead of left. I wish I had zigged instead of zagged. I wish I had pulled the trigger in this moment instead of just coasted along and, uh, and let things happen to me. Uh, and I have, I have lots of those uh, in my life. You're like, wow, I, just, I wish I had done that differently. I wish I had done something. Uh, I wish, usually, I just wish I had acted instead of not acted. I wish I had been more aggressive instead of passive. And when I consider these things in my life, I ask myself, well, why didn't I act differently? Why didn't I act aggressively? Why didn't I try instead of just sit there with my arms folded and think about it? And the scary thing for me is that most of the time, I don't have a good answer why. Is anybody relating to me here? It's like, wow, you know, that, that could have been an important thing. I just kind of let it drift by. And I don't know why I let it drift by, you know? I mean, maybe nothing would have come of it. But why did I just kind of sit there and do nothing? And, you know, 90% of the time, the answer I give myself is, I don't know, I just, I just did. I, I just, I just I didn't, didn't do it. I don't know why, I just didn't. Anybody relate to that? Give me, give me some snaps. Give me, a, give me a nod. Stand up and shout righteously, amen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are. We have started a, a a sermon series, a season of the church. I think uh, that is, is all about revival, which is this phenomenon that you that you you read about in the Bible, you read about in Christian history, uh, where um, the kingdom of God comes in a way that is just multiplied. You know, it's just it's amplified, it's accelerated. You know, suddenly instead of uh, you know, some people are coming to faith. Hordes of people are coming to faith. Uh, suddenly, instead of getting a trickle of healing miracles, you just get waves of healing miracles. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's just, it's like everything is coming alive in a new way all of a sudden. So they call it revival, which means to live again. You know, it's like as if the previous season is dead in comparison to the season of revival, and we see, we see it in the Bible. We see it happen in Jerusalem. We see it happen in Samaria. We studied uh, some of those uh, in last week's sermon, uh, if you missed it. And of course, it happens uh, a ton in, in history, in church history, uh, in, in post-Bible uh, times. Uh, American history uh, kind of started with something called the First Great Awakening. It was this massive Christian revival uh, throughout the American uh, colonies. Uh, Historians will tell you, at least they used to tell you before it became politically incorrect, that it was massively important to the coalescence of colonial government and even the writing of the Constitution and and the Revolution itself was sort of directly connected to the Great Awakening in America. There was a second Great Awakening on the American frontier, a lot of frontier revivals from which we get the tradition of tent meetings. But throughout American history, there have been these times where it just seems like God has poured heaven out and everything became incredibly accelerated and inc- incredibly amplified. One of my favorite examples I talked about last week was uh, what is sometimes called the lunchtime prayer revival, which sort of hit uh, in the northeastern United States and the eastern seaboard uh, during the Civil War years. Uh, this guy named uh, Jeremiah Lanfier in, in, in New York City decided to start a prayer meeting on his lunch hour right, right in the middle of, of the city. And uh, within a year, year and a half, um, 50,000 out of the 800,000 people living in New York City at the time, 50,000 of them had become new converts in just like a year's time because of lunch hour, a lunch hour prayer meeting that just grew to hundreds and then multiplied and it was not uncommon during those years, about a seven or eight year period, to have signs on factories and businesses that said, close for lunchtime prayer. It's, and it's just inexplicable how a lunchtime prayer meeting would result in tens of thousands of converts in New York alone. Remember, it spread up and down the eastern seaboard. Just amplified, just accelerated. Just a, a bountiful, bountiful harvest. The thing about revivals, these incredible heavenly seasons, is that they always come for believers, they always come. You can read 2,000 years of church history and there are times when people are just certain that Christianity is dead for whatever reason because of government upheaval, or persecution, or philosophical change, or industrialization, or modernization, whatever it is. And revival always comes to just change society. Revival always comes. But it's mysterious how and why it comes. It's a little bit unpredictable. I mean, we have a part that we play, and then God has some crazy part that He plays in His timing. You know, usually our kingdom life is, you know, minister and you minister faithfully and you see fruit, you see good fruit, you see steady fruit, but sometimes you minister faithfully and fruit just pours out of the sky. And how and why it works is just a little bit mysterious a little bit mysterious. In other, room, in other words, there's just a lot of room for God in it. Uh, the whole God story from, I think, the beginning of Scripture until now is filled with this mysterious tension. It's like God is always doing stuff, but, but, but just a little bit unpredictably. You know, He's always moving, but just, uh, you know, you can't totally explain how it unfolds. I think this is true of our personal lives and I think this is true of God's big global movements, His big social movements as well. And this leaves a lot of room for faith. It leaves a lot of space, the space between I'm serving faithfully and miracles come like a waterfall. There's always space between there and that space we fill with faith. Usually, space... Well, always, faith is spelled T-R-Y. And sometimes as well, faith is spelled W-A-I-T. Room for faith. Accordingly, according to these mysterious spaces and this wondering exactly what God is up to, accordingly, being ready, the act of being ready is a huge theme. In Jesus' teachings, one of the things he talks about again and again and again throughout the Gospels where we have recorded all of his teachings and his miracles and stuff like that, again and again, he touches on this theme of, are you ready? You need to be ready. Oh, sure, it seems like things are kind of calm right now, but are you ready for what's going to come? Are you ready for what's happening just around the corner? You can't predict when things are just going to jump into acceleration. All you can do is be ready. And Jesus talks about this frequently. He talks about it frequently in his parables. There's the, maybe you know some of these parables. There's the wedding banquet parable. Do you guys know that one? Where you know, uh, there's going to be a big wedding banquet, this huge heavenly wedding banquet. Are you, are you dressed appropriately or not? Because when the wedding happens, and in the parable it seems like it just kind of springs on, it's a surprise wedding. Uh, there's been some of those in my family history. Um, you know, you have, to be, you have to be dressed for it, it's going to be too late. There's the parable of the lamps, so the oil of the lamps, you know, when the bridegroom comes at night, are you going to have oil in your lamp, or are you going to be caught short because if you're caught without it, it's going to be too late for you. Do you guys know that parable? Um... There's the bigger barns parable where a guy is just sort of into making money. He's into making money. And he makes so much money. He has such a bumper crop from his field that his barns will no longer hold it. So instead of just sort of giving it away or being generous, he says, oh, I know. I'll build a bigger barn. You know. And he sort of dedicates his life to building bigger barns and having more and more. And, and that parable ends with the Lord saying, you, know, you fool, tonight your life is required of you. Uh, you had enough for your entire lifetime, but you still weren't ready for your death. You got to be ready because these significant moments come upon you uh, without you being able to predict when. Most famously, Jesus says, hey, you know, you guys are waiting around to do kingdom ministry. I tell you, the harvest is ripe right at this moment. The harvest is ripe. Pray that the Lord raises up Workers, pray that the Lord of the harvest raises up workers. Your problem, in other words, is not that you lack opportunity. The problem is that you lack workers, you know. The opportunities are always there. Why does Jesus talk about being ready and being poised for action all the time? I I conclude this, see if you follow my logic. The reason Jesus talks so much about it is because we suck at it. So he constantly has to harp on it. He constantly has to remind us. And what the weight of all of these teachings mean is that Jesus is trying to say to us that we don't miss out on wonderful kingdom things because we lack opportunity. The opportunities always come. No, we miss out on wonderful kingdom things because we let them pass us by. Because we're just not ready. As a lifestyle, we just live in a state of unreadiness. In other words, like I often do, we find ourselves saying, I I don't know why I didn't act on that. I just didn't. I just didn't. We're stuck in neutral. And I think that's often how life is for us, right? It's like, if you're not moving forward, you know, you're stuck in neutral. If you're not actively acting, pardon the phrase, you're just stuck in neutral. And things pass you by. I would like to read uh, another sort of a readiness uh, parable, teaching that Jesus gives. It's from Matthew chapter 11. It's on your program, and it's going to be here on the big board as well. So Matthew 11 is just, uh, it's just a, great, it's a great chapter in the Gospels. It contains uh, my life verse. Um, But in this chapter, uh, Jesus is having interactions that have to do with John the Baptist. You guys know who John the Baptist was. He showed up uh, on the public scene slightly before Jesus did and and announced that the Messiah was coming. He sort of pointed the way uh, to Jesus. But John has fallen on hard times. He's been thrown into prison. and He sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus to say, hey, Jesus, you you are the Messiah, right? Right? Because, you know, I'm in prison and I'm probably going to die here. In fact, he does die there. He gets beheaded. Um, and Jesus sends back John's messengers and says, just tell them what you see, man. Just tell them that, you know, miracles are happening, Uh, the poor are hearing uh, the good news. John will know. John will be uh, reassured. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and says, "Uh, essentially, you know, John was the real deal. John was, was the prophet of the Messiah. John was the prophet of the one that this entire culture has been waiting for Dot, dot, dot. But so many people missed out on his message. So many people let it go by. And then he gives this little teaching beginning in verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? And that word uh, in the Greek, generation, can also simply be translated this culture or this people. What, what, what can I com- to what can I compare these people? Us. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. So we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, oh, he has a demon. And the Son of Man, Jesus means himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, Well, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Some translations say, but wisdom is proved right by her children, by her results. Um, I've always loved this teaching because it has a little edge of mystery to it. You read it and you can kind of be like, "Uh, what's he saying? Uh, Children sitting in the marketplace, basically, you know, vernacular. You're like a bunch of children sitting at the mall, um, calling out to each other. You know, I played you some music and you didn't dance. Uh, so I commiserated with you and you wouldn't mourn. Um, that's, kind of, that's kind of what it's saying. What What is Jesus trying to tell us here? Um, well, like so many of Jesus' teachings, there's sort of a, There's a contrast. There's there's a little bit of ridiculousness to this one in order to prove his point. Uh, Imagine a bunch of kids sitting in the mall where they hang out. They go to do kid things, and the natural state of children is to be what? Well, it's to be playful, right? Is to be enthusiastic. That's how kids are naturally. But these kids are. They're not only not playful and, and not enthusiastic, but they've. They're in this funk. The whole crowd—they're they're complaining to one another, and you get one group of kids saying, "You know, hey, we played the pipe for you. We played some music. We played some tunes. I played my jam." Uh, and and no one no one danced. Nobody nobody enjoyed it. There was there, there was no childlikeness. There was no enthusiasm. There was no response. You know, and and then. And then we, we sang a dirge. In other words, we tried to, you know, downshift, to be sad, to commiserate. And there was no response to that either. Um, have you ever... Parents, have your children ever gotten to that mood where nothing pleases them? Come on. Give me an amen. Give me something. Right? when they're just like, they're overtired or something, and there's just like nothing that you can do. And Jesus is saying like, well, this generation is just, just like that all the time. They're, they're, just, they're just possessed by a spirit of, eh. What is that? What is that? And I think that that spirit, whatever you call it, is what Jesus is contending to dance. I'm I'm gonna choose to call it a critical spirit. This generation is characterized by a spirit of criticism. And uh, the thing that makes a spirit of criticism so deadly is that it just runs directly counter to faith at some level, some level. It's like a mood. It's like a mood. And when you're in that mood where nothing can please you, bad things happen. You miss out a lot. And that is what Jesus is saying caused people to miss John the Baptist. And that, Jesus is saying, is what caused people to misidentify him, to miss what he was doing on earth. Because, you know, it wasn't anything Jesus did or didn't do. It was just that they were in a mood. They were just in a mood they were in a critical mood. And so, I don't know, Jesus could have raised the dead. Jesus could have, could have walked on water. Jesus could have died and rose again. But if you're in the mood, nothing impresses you. Eh, you're just in the mood. You guys ever get in that mood? I think it's the mood of, of our generation. Uh, the critical spirit. Note, uh, as Jesus does, that the critical spirit comes across as being rational, but is often quite irrational. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say uh, he, he has a demon. He's not acting naturally. I'm going to analyze his behavior, and I conclude that his behavior is not healthy. I mean, is it really psychologically healthy uh, to never drink wine? Is it psychologically healthy to, you know, fast all the time? I mean, really, what, you can imagine, you know, op-ed pieces is like, You know, not eating is not good for the body. Uh, This spiritual movement is unhealthy, you know, something like that. And then Jesus comes, and uh, he is eating, and he is drinking wine. In fact, he's going to some pretty raging parties, right? He's doing the opposite of John, and those same people are like, well, that's overdoing it. Um, you know, friend of sinners and tax collector. Now, you're just a partier, so one person is a fanatic and the other person is a partier. And it's like, man, which is it? Which is it? Well, I don't know. When you're cont- contending against the critical mood, you know, criticism is just criticism. It doesn't matter what's in front of it, it's just going to criticize, right? That sort of mood. Uh, wisdom is, is justified by her deeds or in some translations, wisdom wisdom is is justified by her children. In other words, like in the short term, being critical uh, can appear smart. But in the long term, what you notice about people who are just critical is that nothing ever happens in their life, right? So if we're talking about Results over the long term that critical mood is just going to kill you kind of what jesus Jesus is pointing out. Um, I remember when uh, <clears throat> when I went to grad school back in the day, uh, I went to a very competitive grad program and you know and I, I would study at some good places I would study at Stanford and Chicago ultimately uh, I was at Harvard um, for my uh, PhD research uh, postgrad, um, met with some really top notch scholars. And, uh, and it got so I would crack jokes about this. Like when, when you were in a room and somebody was presenting a, a paper, uh, and you were listening to it, and then you were going to discuss the paper, nobody ever started off by saying, That's a great paper, I agree totally. Because if you said that, you were stupid, right? The only way to prove yourself smart is saying, Oh, well, that's a really nice nice effort. But I take exception to something on page four because then you're proving that you're smarter than the guy presenting, right? So criticism is the mechanism of appearing intelligent. Um, I think, I mean, just turn on any news channel and I think you get an earful of this, right? People make their living being critical thinkers, sometimes critical thinkers, I mean, sometimes they just say, oh, yeah, that's great. I totally agree. But you never hear anyone say that. That's awesome. I'm totally in. Nobody gets paid for saying that. We value people who tear down. Um, You can be, uh, as one of my favorite Christian writers say, you can be dumb as a cabbage, but if you say something critical, people think you're smart. It's a cheap way to feel as if you're in control. It's a cheap way to feel as if you're wise. I used to be in the business world as well, and there's always a guy at the table who proves his wisdom by saying, well, we can't be sure that's going to work, and I think we should be cautious. Which sounds really smart until you realize, yeah, but we're in business, and we have to do something. You know? I think criticism is is seductive that way. And we can fall into a lifestyle of it. It makes us seem smart and in control. It can be very useful sometimes in uh, creating boundaries in your life. But what a critical spirit does is that it always causes you to miss opportunities. It always causes you to let things float by. It is astonishingly easy to be dismissive in life. It's astonishingly easy to say, "Ah, eh, we'll see. so easy to do that. It's much harder saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think there's something here I'm in. It requires an entirely different sort of mindset to do that. Now, the thing is, criticism and dismissiveness is often proved right in the short term. Because if some opportunity floats by in life. If God might be doing something over here and you're dismissive of it, you're like, ah, nothing's going to come from that. Nothing's going to come from that. Well, if enough people believe you, then what's going to happen? Well, nothing's going to come of it because you've let the opportunity go. But again, in the long term, nothing's going to happen in your life and you're going to realize that uh, that wasn't wisdom. Um Jesus, essentially in this in this passage, to sum up, is warning us that that spirit kills. Ultimately, that spirit just ruins everything. Um, I, I might sum up this way: uh, wisdom lies not in the lack of analysis, but in knowing when to set criticism aside. Wisdom lies not in the lack of analysis but in knowing when to set criticism aside. There's nothing wrong with analytical thinking. There's nothing wrong with figuring things out. Um, I like to think I'm a very analytical person uh, myself. But you gotta know when to just move out of the mood. Ah, yeah, that, that might not work. But it might work. I'm not entirely sure that that's all God over there. Like, uh, that might be that, but that might not be. So, wow, I think somewhere in there is God. You know, there's a perspective of faith that is different than a perspective of critical spirit. So wisdom usually lies in knowing when to set the critical spirit uh, aside. In the early and mid-90s, there was this big move. It became international. Uh, it was in uh, garnered headlines in international pa- uh, papers. It was a big, uh, big story in Time magazine. And it was about this phenomenon called the Toronto Blessing. Anybody remember that? So the story goes, there was this little church uh, located near the Toronto airport in Toronto, Canada. It was a vineyard church for those of you who have vineyard backgrounds. Uh, and it was a church of probably fewer than 200 people. Uh, but the Spirit visited them one day and started, doing, they started seeing some supernatural manifestations, a few miracles and stuff like that. Uh, so they decided to stick with it. And the, the story goes, in short order, they had to move out of that church. They had to rent a warehouse. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people came from all over the world to visit them uh, because God was outpouring so much supernatural power there. And so it became known as the, as the Toronto Blessing. And there are all sorts of stories of renewed movements around the world and movements of evangelism and church planting that all sort of uh, link to uh, what people experience in the Toronto Blessing. So I visited there uh, a, a couple times. Uh, one time I went uh, and they would give some sort of message. They would do worship and then they would just invite for the Holy Spirit to come on the warehouse and there'd be like maybe thousands of people in the warehouse and they would line them up in lines and the Spirit would just come and do business on people. You know, some people would get healed, some people would get renewed, God would talk to some people. Some people would get delivered from demons, Uh, some people would just experience the Lord for the first time. The uh, the first time I was there, um, I was kind of standing next to the the people uh, who were leading this this church, this renewal, and a television crew uh, came. Uh, from another part of Canada. And so the, the reporter walks in, and it's always easy to spot the reporter, the, you know, the, the on-camera personality. She was all decked out and was holding the microphone and stuff. And then the camera crew and the sound guy. And, and I got to be close enough to, to hear uh, the reporter start to interview uh, the leader of this church. This guy, his name was John. John and uh, and uh, she said, well, what's going on here? Uh, exactly, I see all of these crazy things around the room and people passing out, people jumping up and down, people weeping, explain this to me. And, and Pastor John said, why don't I pray for you instead? And so on camera, he just put a hand on her, on her head and said, you know, Holy Spirit, come and, and demonstrate what you're doing here. And the reporter live on camera just passes out. Boom, drops her microphone and starts wiggling on the ground. And I thought, that's the best interview I've ever seen. Because what is she going to say? You know, and I caught them a little while later and they turned off the camera and the pastors were just counseling with the woman and sort of introducing her to God and stuff like that, which was, which was, which was lovely. But there was so much criticism uh, because people looked so weird uh, at, that, at that renewal, it was called. Nobody ever quite called it a revival. Wisdom lies not in the lack of analysis, but in knowing when to set the criticism aside and just to jump in, just to experience uh, what's, what's going on. Being ready is really about the act of making yourself ready. Uh, being willing to be ready, if you know what I mean. It's like, are you willing to take the opportunities that the Lord comes by? If you're in a critical mood, you will you'll. Whisk, you'll miss them. If you're in a readiness mood, you'll try things. When, uh, when I was praying about uh, doing a series on revival, uh, the Lord spoke to me some things, I mentioned this last week, that he wanted me to include in our discussions. Discussions. Uh, certain elements, and the first element he spoke, and this surprised me, like prophetically and unmistakably, when I said, well, Lord, what do you want to talk about with respect to revival? The first thing the Lord said, powerfully, distinctly, and surprisingly, is he said, regrouping. Write down the word regrouping, Jordan. And so I wrote it on my whiteboard. It's still there. Regrouping. Um, and I, I think what he was saying, what he was saying to Blue Water Mission uh, is that, If we want to be ready for a big move of the Lord, we need to regroup. Now, for some of us personally, it might mean sort of a personal regrouping, sort of a getting it together. Uh, But generally, uh, for us as a community, uh, I think it means, you know, making sure we're organized to catch what God is doing. Making sure we're organized to catch what God is doing. Regrouping is a military term. I used to study military history. I know this. Uh, you would get into a battle line. You would charge. You would clash with your opponent. And then at a certain point in the middle of the battle, someone would blow a trumpet and you would, you would take some step backs and you would regroup. You would see who was still alive and you would get back into a battle line. But it was a new battle line because some, some of your comrades weren't going to be there this time. You had to regroup, reorganize in the midst of battle. Otherwise, you were just going to get your butt kicked. Um, and from time to time, in the chaos of life, the Lord blows a trumpet and says, all right, all right, look, look. I know we've lost some people. I know things have been a little helter-skelter. It's time to regroup. It's time to get ready. Otherwise, you're all just going to get your butt kicked and you're going to miss the victory Uh, that you are supposed to have. I think regrouping uh, is organizational and, of course, it's attitudinal, right? It's like, all right, we're going to regroup so that we're ready for the next charge. Um, I think it's kind of like preparing for a baby. Like, when when you know a baby is coming into your family, you shift attitude, don't you? You get into readiness mode. It's like, oh, my gosh, particularly if it's your first child, like, what is this going to be like? You know, it's going to be a season of fruitfulness, but you're a little bit scared. But you also organize, don't you? You get some stuff together, maybe you set aside a little space that's going to be the baby space. As if the baby is going to be born and actually sleep in the crib, that's not how it works. No. Uh, The baby's going to sleep wherever the baby falls asleep. Uh, But you're going to be ready for that, right? You're going to organize for it, you're going to get your resources together, because Uh, While there's a little bit of uncertainty about the whole escapade, you know that something's coming. You don't know exactly how it's going to be. You might not even know exactly when, but you know something's coming. There's something impending. And I think that's what regrouping is about. It's like, you know something's coming. So shift. Shift in the way that you're uh, approaching things. Uh, Historically, during revivals, regrouping has often boiled down to choosing sides. In every revival, there's a reaction against it. Every time. Usually half the church at least totally criticizes it. Half the capital C church. Revivals are often hated by established churches, but welcomed by you know the masses of quote-unquote sinners uh, who are stuck in, in the world. Although the world criticizes it too. Um, it's It's about, uh, are you in the in group or are you in the out group? Historically, that's a big choice when God does something. Am I going to catch this wave or I'm not going to catch this wave? Those of us who surf know that there's just a couple seconds when you get to make that decision. Otherwise, the wave passes you by. So you got to be grouped for it. Here's what regrouping might mean for you. First, Uh, the first thing it, 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 it should mean for you is that you should be praying about what's coming and how to get organized for it. Please pray about it. And this is just a message from Kahu to Blue Water Mission. Please pray about what's coming and please ask the Lord how you might get organized for it. I know that's really general, but that's a major invitation that I'm sending out To our community, pray about it. Pray about it. How should you group? How should you regroup? How should you get organized yourself, your family, you with your friends and traveling companions? Please pray about it. Uh, Can you do that for me? That's what I'm asking as a as a personal favor. Just pray about it. Let me know what the Lord says to you too, because I am pretty sure the Lord will be directing us. I am. I'm really, really confident that the Lord is going to be speaking prophetically and directly to numerous people in this congregation about the seasons that is coming and what you should be doing about it. You specifically. So don't miss out on that opportunity. The Lord uh, speaks, but you do have to pray into it. You do have to get ready. You have to make yourself ready for it. Uh, And secondly, Practically speaking, if the issue is regrouping, what am I going to tell you to do? Pray, Pray, I already told you to pray, but good. You were listening. I'm going to tell you to join a group, right? Wrong. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. I'm going to tell you to put somebody else into a group. Because I think that's more revival-y. Go ahead and write that down, revivally. Um, Help put people into groups. Help other people regroup. As opposed to just being in an Ohana group yourself, although that is really, really important. But I say that every sermon, don't I? So so here's a new one. Put other people into groups. Uh, I I did a little research on on church involvement and group involvement uh, this week. Do you know that the act of going to church increases your life expectancy by three years just by going to church? Do you know that? All sorts of research on this. It vastly increases your chances for mental health and vastly increases your chances of recovering uh, from uh, poor mental health and all sorts of psychological problems. There's a study by the London School of Economics, they examined over 9,000 Europeans, so people across all the countries of Europe. uh, They focused on people who were over 50, in other words, people set in their ways uh, already, uh, over a four-year period. So this huge study, and they determined in this study by the London School of Economics that the only activity linked to sustained happiness in people was going to a place of worship. That was the only activity that had any predictive power with respect to people's sustained happiness. They compared it to um, uh, getting uh, mental health care. They compared it to education. They compared it to uh, sports. They compared it to charity work. They, con- they uh, compared it to joining a political party and being political act- politically active. active. They con- compared it to participation in all other manner of community organizations. And they determined that the only activity that made you happier over a long period of time after age 50 was going to a place of worship. Not amazing. I I mention all that stuff, because you should want to put people into faith groups. You should want to put people into churches. You should want to put people into small groups. At the very least, they're going to live longer. But they're also going to live happier, and we're not even saying anything about whether they truly believe or not. Just the act of being there is a tremendous blessing uh, to human beings. Help put people into groups. Can you do that? One of the tragedies uh, that I see sometimes uh, for me up front at Blue Water Mission is that like, uh, a visitor comes into the group and I watch them receive something from the Lord in the course of our service. And then when the church dismisses, they walk out and nobody chases them down. Uh, I've brought quite a number of people to the Lord by running out into the parking lot. Hey, what's your name? And they're like totally rude and a little bit creepy, but I do it anyway. Uh, and uh, don't let opportunities pass us by I think the Lord has been bringing us people who need a group who need regrouping in their lives I think, I think the Lord has been bringing us people in a fairly steady stream and I'm pretty sure that stream's going to get wider but man we better get on it are you in? I think we have lots of Ohana groups in the church that are ready to grow and and, and multiply, but I think the Lord is bringing people into our lives and we should not fail to connect them. Making connections, making connections, the basic building block uh, of revival. I don't know when revival will come. I, I don't know I just know that it will come. I am absolutely certain of that. It will come for you individually, and I'm quite certain it will come for us as a faith community. I'm pretty sure it's going to come for us as a culture. I don't know when it's going to come, but I think I can smell the rain on the wind. I think I'm starting to catch it be good for us to set out some basins to catch the drops as they fall. Father God, uh, I do pray for your massive movement in this place. I pray uh, that you would fill all of the gaps with your angels, with the presence of your Spirit. I pray that you would begin to do things sovereignly, that you would be a step ahead of us, that we would be scrambling to catch up with you as is appropriate in a season of renewal. I pray, Lord, that you would make the first move. I pray that you would make the first move uh, for those individuals who are sitting here this morning and desperately need you to make the first move. I pray, Lord, that, that, that with, with your spirit, you'd lay a hand on their shoulders, that you would touch their heart and make the first move right in this moment. Say, hello, it's me. Don't miss this. Father God, I pray that you would perfect your agenda for every person here. Uh, I pray that we'd all be changed at least a little bit before we go. I pray uh, that this would be a week of you ministering to us, sovereignly taking the first step. Uh, But open our eyes, Lord, and make us ready. In Jesus' name, everybody says...